Last time uh, I was teaching, we finished the book of Timothy. And one of the things that came out in that chapter was the call to judgment, speaking about Jesus who is going to judge all things. And we said at the time that there are a number of judgments that are yet ahead, uh, a number of things that we will see. Um, we're told in First Timothy chapter 4, verse 1, I charge you therefore before God and the Lord Jesus Christ, and it says, who shall judge the quick and the dead at his appearing and his kingdom? And we talked about the various judgments that are coming, but then highlighted this verse that's on the screen there from First Peter four seventeen, which says, for the time has come for judgment to begin at the house of God. Another way of translating that would be for the season of judgment, because we know there's going to be this period of judgment. Throughout scripture we're told of this very clearly. The season of judgment is going to commence at the house of God, the church. And and that may seem a a strange thing, but as a kind of a a topical study over the next few weeks, I want to just look at this because it's helpful to understand the context of of what we're looking at here and, and the judgment that is going to come upon the church. And why is there going to be a judgment upon the church? Why does Peter even say this? Well, what we're going to look at a little bit this morning is apostasy in the last days what we'll look at then subsequently is that the future of the church seen through the history of israel is a fascinating study and you see the parallels in in corinthians 1 corinthians 10 it says that we shouldn't make the same mistakes they made and paul hammers the point that they made these errors don't make the same mistakes and as we look back through church history guess what we've made the same mistakes and then We'll conclude by looking at the final one world church and how apt this is at this time. We're talking about Europe and the situation that's going on there uh, and we'll show you some parallels with Europe and what is going on behind the scenes um, and how from a spiritual perspective there really is a serious problem at the heart of Europe. From a, a, a spiritual point of view there's, there's clearly people in power that we don't get to see that I'm manipulating things, and devil had a, has a real foothold uh, in the European system. And we'll look at that uh, a little bit more, and then subsequently going on to what the Bible says in Revelation 17, 18, about this final judgment, how that's going to come about. So uh, for this morning, he's really just looking at the, the, the whole idea that Paul talks about to Timothy, about apostasy, about people moving away from the faith in the last days. Now, we're told in Romans 3, verse 11 and 12, that there is none that seeks after God. No, not one. So we've got to understand that the, the real root of the problem here is what we're told in Proverbs fourteen twelve that there is a way which seems right to a man, but the end thereof are the ways of death. As we, we looked at a little while ago, Psalm 119, man's natural inclination is not to go after the things of God. The natural inclination is to go toward the flesh and, and so on. Romans 5.12 says, Wherefore, as by one man's sin entered into the world, and death by sin, so death passed upon all men, for all have sinned. Interesting, isn't it? You know, sometimes people think about Adam and think, you know, well, you know, I, I, if somebody else had been there, would it have been any different? Or if I'd have been there, would it have been? No, no, it wouldn't have been any different. Unfortunately, Adam happened to be the one that was there in that sense, but you know, we would have all transgressed. Not necessarily Quite the same circumstance, the same situation, but at some point, some way, we would have transgressed. Because that is the natural inclination of man. And man, unfortunately, gives into those things way too easily. So all have sinned. And death has passed to uh, all men, because all have sinned. See, none of us are uh, innocent. 
You know, sometimes you hear that question, why do bad things happen to good people? And I love the response which says, that only ever happened once, and he volunteered for it. Romans 7 verse 5 says, For when we were in the flesh, the motions of our sins, which were uh, by the law, did work in our members to bring forth fruit unto death. Again, the law exposes the sin in our life. That's what scripture makes very clear. The law is given just to show us that we're sinful. The law has given us God's standard, and it shows how far below that we have fallen. And again, we read verse 14 of Romans 7, For we know that the law is spiritual, but I am carnal, sold under sin. For that which I do, uh, I, I allow not. For what I would, that I do not. Sorry, that do I not. But what I hate, that I do. You see, we're appalled. It's like we're in this tug of war, and we're pulled naturally towards the flesh, towards the, the things of this world, towards sin. If then I do that which I would not, I consent unto the law that it is good. We show that the law is right. We know that when we're breaking the law that it's wrong. Our conscience bears witness to that. Now then it is no more the I that do it, but the sin that dwells in me. Says Paul. It goes on, it says, For I know that in me, that is in my flesh, dwells no good thing. For to will is present with me, but how to perform that which is good I find not. You know, I, I want to do the right thing. Man naturally has that kind of desire for good things, but can't perform it. There's not that power. This is the difference between somebody who's born of God and somebody who is not. Somebody who's not born of God cannot do that which is right. Somebody who's born of God has the power to do that which is right. And we have that choice. From again, Jeremiah seventeen nineteen, the heart is deceitful above all things and desperately wicked. Who could know it? The word in the Hebrew, anash there. Uh, and it just means to be incurably wicked. That's the idea. Interesting though, what we're told is in John 1 John 3, 1. Behold, what manner of love the Father has bestowed upon us that we should be called the sons of God. See, we're given a new heart, a new life. This is what, what the Lord does in us when we become Christians. In Hebrews 3, verses 8 to 13, it says, Harden not your hearts as in the provocation, as in the day of temptation in the wilderness. Looking back, thinking about Israel and all that they did and went through. Again, using them as a model, which we'll look at more in detail next week. When your fathers tempted me, proved me, and saw my works forty years, wherefore I was grieved with that generation, said they do always err in their heart, and they have not always known my ways. So I swore in my wrath that they shall not enter into my rest. Take heed, brethren, lest there be in any of you an evil heart of unbelief in departing from the living God. But exhort one another daily while it's called today, lest any of you be hardened through the deceitfulness of sin. So ultimately, the real problem is man's heart. This is why apostasy occurs in the first place. Man naturally will migrate to the things of the world. And without God's grace, without that strength that comes from his Holy Spirit, we would all be in that position of just going back to the things of the world. Isaiah 53, 6 reminds us that we've all, like sheep, gone astray, turned to his own way. Again, speaking of those who are unregenerate, those who have not been born again. Once you are born again, Again, God gives you the power to, to walk in his way. Now, Ecclesiastes 1.9, men, the men studied this book uh, over the last year or so uh, in our men's meetings. Um, it says, the thing that has been is that which shall be, and that which is done is that which shall be done. There is no new thing under the sun. Hegel put it this way, man learns from history that man learns nothing from history. 
And I like that. It's, it's very simple. That we don't learn the lessons of the past. You know, Israel made so many mistakes and the church has repeated the same mistakes. You know, as individuals, maybe our parents made certain mistakes. And it's incredible how we often make the same mistakes that our parents made. Apostasy, this again comes with this Greek word meaning defection or revolt. Um, to move away or apart from from a, from a position of standing firm. That, that's the idea. So it's to standing apart from. When we go back to Genesis chapter 4, we read, Adam knew his wife again and she bare a son and called his name Seth. For God has said that uh, she has appointed me another seed instead of Abel, Abel whom Cain slew. Uh, and to Seth, to him also uh, there was born a son, and he called his name Enos. Then began man to call upon the name of the Lord. That's what we're told in the text. That's fine. No problem with the text itself. But the idea here is not that men began to just cry out to God, but men began to profane God's name. Uh, there's a number of other early translations um, that suggest that uh, one of the targets of Onkelos says this, uh, it desisted from praying in the name. The target of Jonathan says they surnamed their idols in the name. Uh, and then another commentary on the Mishnah, going back to 1611, uh, by, by Maimonides said this, you uh, ascribe the origin of idolatry to the days of Enosh. So saying that very, very soon after creation, man started turning away from God. They started turning to idols and idol worship. We, we, we see that very clearly with the situation with the golden calf. How quickly they'd left Egypt. And then all of a sudden, after seeing the miracles and everything that God had done, they turned to idolatry. And we see it. With Enos, that led to the judgment of the flood. That apostasy that we just read about there led to that judgment. We, we see it with Cush and Nimrod in Genesis 10. That led to the judgment at Babel. We see again, as I mentioned a moment ago, the molten calf. But that led to 3,000 dying in Exodus 32, 28, we're told that. It's interesting, isn't it, that when the, the, when the, the Spirit comes, 3,000 are saved on the day of Pentecost. The contrast. With Balaam, 24,000 died because of his apostasy. We see the situation with Korah, 250 people died. God brings judgment every time in response to apostasy. With Israel, 13 times in the book of Judges, they go after false gods. They walk away from the Lord. And as a result of that, the Lord allowed the the neighboring nations, the, the, the Amorites, the Hittites, the Moabites and the Edomites, all these nations that were around them to oppress Israel during this period of time. 111 years in total, if you add up all these periods of time together, they spent under the, the thumb of their neighbors. And then, of course, Israel and Judah, because of their disobedience, ultimately Israel were carried away in about 722 BC to Assyria, and then finally the southern kingdom of Judah for their disobedience, for not keeping the Sabbath and so on, and for their apostasy that we read about very much in the books of Jeremiah and so on, um, they were eventually taken away uh, in about 587, uh, the final siege to Babylon. So every time in Scripture we see apostasy, it's followed by judgment. Deuteronomy 13, 6 and 7. This is what God says regarding those that would go astray and lead others. He says, if thy brother the son of thy mother, or thy son, or thy daughter, 
or the wife of thy bosom, or thy friend, which is as thine own soul. So he's saying, no matter how close these people are to you, doesn't matter what the relationship, if, it says, they entice thee secretly, saying, let us go and serve other gods, which thou hast not known, thou nor thy fathers, namely the gods of the people which are round about you, nigh unto thee, or far off from thee, from one end of earth, even to the other end of the earth, thou shalt not consent unto him, nor hearken unto him, neither shall thy eye pity him, neither shall thou spare, neither shall thou conceal him. Have nothing to do. Don't be party to it. Don't try and hide. You know, don't try and pretend it's not happening. But thou shalt surely kill him. This is what God says about people that would lead others away from him. Thou shalt surely kill him. Thy hand shall be first upon him to put him to death, and afterwards the hand of all the people. Now that may sound incredibly harsh to us, but we're not dealing with just this life. We're dealing with eternity. You know, we tend to get so upset when people read verses like this and say, oh, God's a cruel God, God's a harsh God. But, you know, there's a great illustration um, that I saw in a sermon once. This long, long piece of rope, imagine from here to the wall, and just a very little band this end was coloured in red. And the preacher said, that represents now. Imagine that the rest of rope is eternity. All our focus is on the little bit of red. You don't think about eternity. You know, when we read about these people that put the death in Scripture for these kind of things, you know, it seems harsh. But we don't think about the eternal consequences. We don't think about the damage they do to people that could separate them from God forever. That's a far bigger problem. Now, God is very, very clear about dealing with these things. And it is a national stone with stones that he died because he had sought to thrust thee away from the Lord thy God which brought thee out of the land of Egypt from the house of bondage, and all Israel shall hear and fear, and shall do no more any such wickedness as this is among you. Now, we're told again that there is going to be deception in the last days. And certainly after the church is taken out of here, it's going to get worse. And there's going to be strong delusion, we're told, in Thessalonians, um, to believe the lie. Matthew 24 Verse 5, Jesus said that many shall come in my name and shall deceive many. I want to look at some of these things that Jesus said. As he sat upon the Mount of Olives, the disciples came to him privately saying, Tell us when shall these things be and what shall be the sign of thy coming at the end of the world? And Jesus answered and said unto them, Take heed that no man deceive you. Uh, That's not just an idle warning. That's a real warning because Jesus knew the reality that people would come and try and deceive you. And if you think you can't be deceived, you've been deceived. For many shall come in my name saying, I am Christ, and shall deceive many. Many are going to come and purport to be the way of salvation, the way to God. But Jesus says, I am the way, the truth, the life. No man can come to the Father except by me. Anybody that tries to suggest that an alternative path to God is doing exactly what this verse warns would happen. A word deceive... In the Greek is planeo, and it means again to, to go astray, to seduce, to wander or be out of the way. So to, take heed that no man seduce you. Subtle, always subtle. Matthew twenty four eleven says, Many false prophets shall arise and shall deceive many. I just take a note how many times the word many is used here. 
Matthew 7, 13, Enter you at the straight gate, for wide is the gate, and broad is the way that leads to destruction, and many there be that go in thereat. Because straight is the gate, and narrow is the way that leads unto life, and few there be that find it. Beware of false prophets which come to you in sheep's clothing, but inwardly they are ravening wolves. People will come to the church. Just as we've been seeing in, in Timothy, Paul warning to, uh, Timothy there, that these things would happen at the beach at uh, Miletus. As Paul warns the Ephesian elders, the church that Timothy would later pastor, that people even from their own cells would come and bring in destructive heresies and so on. Beware of false prophets which come to you in sheep's clothing. They look the part. They look just as they should look. And people say, but they can't be wrong. Look at them. They look great. They say the right things. But we're told, but inwardly they're ravening walls. Jesus even said this, Not everyone that says unto me, Lord, Lord, shall enter into the kingdom of heaven. But he that does the will of my Father which is in heaven. Many will say to me in that day, Lord, Lord, have we not prophesied in thy name? Notice that even the people themselves that are bringing this this, this deception, they also are deceived in thinking that that some way that God's going to go, well, okay, you're all right, you can come in, you can come into heaven. That he's going to make a separate rule for them or something. Many will say to me that day, Lord, Lord, have we not prophesied in your name? So somebody prophesying is no proof that they are serving the Lord. And in the name of cast out devils. And in the name of done many wonderful works. And Jesus says, then I'll profess unto you that I never knew you. Depart from me, ye that work iniquity. We mustn't be impressed by signs, by wonders, by things that are going on. Scripture is our sole foundation. That is the basis. That's what we've got to be so careful. Notice, he that does the will of my Father. And what is that will? Well, First Thessalonians 4 tells us very clearly what God's will is. Is that we be separate from this world. This is the will of God, even your sanctification, that we're separated. That you should abstain from fornication. Now, in the physical sense, that's true. It's a, it's a true statement of scripture. But in the spiritual sense, how applicable as well. That we don't get involved in the things and entangled in the things of this world. It's just as Paul said to Timothy, you know, don't get entangled as a, as a good soldier. Don't get entangled in the things of this world. John seventeen seventeen says, Sanctify them through thy truth and thy word is truth. So how is it that we are set apart is through God's word. It's as simple as that. God's word separates us. It sets us apart for him. Anything that would challenge that, anything that would seek to bring in the world's wisdom or the world's way of doing things. Anybody that comes with a, a kind of a, a plan that is based upon the world, worldly systems, we need to be so, so careful. Remember again in Ephesians, it says, Husbands, love your wives, even as Christ also loved the church and gave himself for it, that he might sanctify and cleanse it with the washing of water by the word. Again, the word is that which cleanses us. This is a safety mechanism that God has put in place for us. When anyone hears the word of the kingdom and understands it not, this is from Matthew 13, then cometh the wicked one and catches away that which is sown in his heart. That is he which received the seed by the wayside. But he that received the seed into stony places, the same is he that heareth the word, heareth the word, and anon with joy receives it. Notice the issue here is the word of God. Is your reaction? Is your response to the word of God? You know, churches these days are trying to put all sorts of other factors in place. The word of God is getting put to one side, but Jesus makes it very clear that your relationship to Him is based upon your understanding of the word of God. 
He is the Word made flesh. Yet he has no root in himself, but endureth for a while. For when tribulation or persecution arises because of the Word, and by and by and by he is offended. He also that received the seed among thorns is he that here is the Word again, and the care of this world, and the deceitfulness of riches choke the Word, and he becomes unfruitful. But he that received the seed into good ground is he that heareth the word and understandeth it, which also bears fruit and brings forth some a hundred, some sixty, some thirty. John five twenty four says, Most assuredly I say to you, he who hears my word and believes in him who sent me has everlasting life and shall not come into judgment. This is what we're, we're talking about here. But has passed from death to life. Okay, quick recap so far. Man is naturally sinful, migrates to the things of the world and the flesh. We've seen every time that apostasy occurs, God brings judgment. But God has given us a safety net, and that is his word. And if we stand true to his word, if the word permeates us in our understanding and our thinking, we will be safe if we're set apart, if we're sanctified by his word. But those who aren't, and those who are pulled away by these things, can expect God's judgment. John 8.31 says, If you abide in my word, you are my disciples indeed. See, that's the, the condition. It's being those who abide in the word. And you shall know the truth, and the truth shall make you free. John 14 says, Jesus answered and said unto him, If anyone loves me, he will keep my word, and my Father will love him, and we will come to him and make our home with him. What a great promise. He who does not love me, does not keep my words, and the word which you hear is not mine, but the Father's who sent me. Jesus is saying that this is from heaven itself. And going to 2 Timothy, which is the book we've just finished studying, 2 Timothy 4, 1 and 2, I charge you therefore before God and Jesus Christ, who shall judge the quick and the dead of his appearing in kingdom, preach the word. Be instant in season and out of season. Reprove, rebuke, exhort with all long-suffering and doctrine. For the time will come when they will not endure sound doctrine, but after their own lust shall they heap to themselves teachers having itching ears, and they shall turn away their ears from the truth and shall be turned unto fables. So scripture is really clear of these things that are going on. We see even in the first century, the church in Galatia, Paul writes to them and says, I marvel that you are so soon removed from him that called you into the grace of Christ unto another gospel, which is not another. It's not a gospel at all. It's not good news. That's what gospel means. It's not good news. But there are, there'd be some that trouble you and would pervert the gospel of Christ. Just as Jesus warned was going to happen, even by the, the time that the church of Galatia had been planted, Paul has to write to them to, to, to put them back on track. Because there were those amongst them that were troubling them, that were perverting or twisting the gospel of Christ. He says, but though we or an angel from heaven preach any other gospel unto you, than that which you have, we have preached unto you, let him be accursed. As we said before, so say, and now again, if any man preach another gospel unto you than that which you received, let him be accursed. This is that verse I was quoting a moment ago, the portion from Acts 20 as Paul lands on the beach of Miletus and the Ephesian elders come down to see him. He says, Take heed therefore unto yourselves and to all the flock over which the Holy Ghost has made you overseers to feed the church of God. With what? With his word. That's what the leaders of a church should be doing. They should be feeding the congregation with the word. Why? Because there is a real danger of deception. There's a real danger that churches and individuals will go astray without the word of God. 
In fact, it's almost a certainty. For I know this, that after my departing, uh, sorry, uh, uh, feed the church of God, which he has purchased with his own blood. We can't forget that. What a price has been paid for us. For I know this, after my departing, shall grievous wolves enter in among you, not sparing the flock. Also of your own selves shall men arise, speaking perverse things, to draw away disciples after them. Therefore watch and remember that by the space of three years I cease not to warn everyone night and day with tears. Now, as a fellowship, we don't look at this every week. We don't talk about the judgment that's coming every week. Paul is saying, for nine days, for three years, I warned you that this stuff's going to happen. I warned you that you are going to see deception coming into the church and people are going to be led astray. Nine days for three years. With tears. You know, it's not a bad thing to have a a timely reminder of these things. Jude 3 and 4 says this, Beloved, when I gave all diligence to write unto you of the common salvation, it was needful for me to write unto you and to exhort you that you should earnestly contend for the faith. Jude says, when I decided to pick up my my quill and to to write to you, I realized that I had to tell you that you must contend for the faith earnestly, which was once delivered unto the saints. It's not going to be changed. It will never change. It was once delivered unto the state of the saints and it stays the same. It says, for there are certain men crept in unawares who were before of old ordained to this condemnation, ungodly men, turning the grace of our God into lasciviousness and denying the only Lord God and our Lord Jesus Christ. Jesus says, I wanted to write to you of our common salvation. I wanted to talk to you about all the wonderful things that we have in common. But you know what? I've got to write to you about this. Almost he says, I don't want to have to do this, but I, I need to, I need to, to warn you that people are going to come in, they're going to twist scripture. They're going to preach their own gospels. People that have been ordained to this condemnation effectively. 2 Peter 2, 1 and 2 says, But there were false prophets among the people, speaking back into Israel's time, just as they experienced and they were troubled by these things, even as there shall be false teachers among you. So we should expect to see within the church at large false teachers. It's so clear in the New Testament. When you go through the problems that Israel experienced, the church is going to experience the same things. There will be false teachers. We need to be so careful who we listen to. In one sense, you go back 20, 30 years ago, it was really very much the, the, the local pastor or local teacher who was very much responsible for the teaching of the congregation and so on. Now we can all go to the internet and we can listen to all sorts of things from all sorts of different places. And in one sense that can be really good, if it's good. But it can also be really dangerous. I've spoken to many pastors who've said that they've had people in their church that have listened to certain teaching online and then they've come back and said, oh, well, I think we should be doing this in the church or I think we should be doing that. Or, or that church is doing this and we should, we should go down that road. Why don't we do this? And, you know, it can be very, very dangerous. And, you know, we have a whole generation of people that are, as scripture says, ever learning and never able to come to a knowledge of the truth. But Peter says, false prophets among the people, even as there shall be false teachers among you who shall privately bring in damnable heresies. Notice, not publicly, it's not going to be something that's obvious. But they'll start on a one-to-one basis. They'll, they'll share a, an idea here or a thought there. 
And they're going to bring in these ideas. And then suddenly a few more get gathered around them. And they're bringing these damnable heresies, even denying the Lord that brought them. I told you a conversation I had a little while ago with a minister. I was absolutely amazed. He was talking to me about the, 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 the work and the opportunity I've had to minister to this group up in Milton Keynes. And he said, oh, what, what, what happened? And you know, how did it come about? And I said, well, basically they were very frustrated with the local church they were at because they had somebody come in saying that God has no place for Israel whatsoever. And they said, well, we've read in Scripture that it says that God does have a plan for Israel. And so they invited me to come and speak to them. So I did, and then it led to the opportunity to go back a number of times and to share Scripture with them. And I said, you know, we've just gone through looking at God's plan for Israel how God still is using that nation and ultimately will sit and rule and reign on the throne of David as was prophesied to, to Mary. And so much of the Old Testament is dealing with that subject. And, yeah, and they're talking about you know, the return of Jesus and things, you know, how Jesus is going to you know, physically return. And at that point, this pastor got up and said, okay, well, well thanks anyway, and walked off. He was offended because I spoke about Jesus returning physically. I couldn't believe it. I was, I was just, just left my mouth open, just, just nonplussed. Pastor of a church, teaching Christians, who clearly has an issue with the idea that Jesus will return physically. Now, those, there's nothing new. We go back to the first century and there's all sorts of heresies and ideas and, you know, the idea that Jesus returned in AD 70 and all these kind of ideas that have been put forward over the years. You can read plenty of commentaries that will take, take you through the details of those things. Even denying the Lord that brought them and bring upon themselves swift destruction. And many shall follow. Notice again, it pains me every time that word occurs, many. Why is it always many? Why is it not just a few? But many shall follow their pernicious ways, by reason of whom the way of truth shall be evil spoken of. They'll turn around and say that those that are speaking and teaching from the word of God, they'll say that we're wrong. And everything is turned upside down. Look at this again. Who probably should bring it down to heresies, even denying the Lord that bought them. That word, agodor, agorazo from the Greek, means just to purchase, specifically to redeem, to buy back. That's what God's done, and they will reject it. They'll turn around just as Pharaoh rejected those opportunities. And again, that word, many. It's really, as the word says, but large, abundant, great Numbers of people are going to follow these destructive teachings that come in. Jesus said, Matthew 7, Enter you at the straight gate, for wide is the gate, and broad is the way that leads to destruction. Again, we read that earlier, but many there be which go in thereat, because straight is the gate, and narrow is the way which leads unto life, and few there be that find it. We read this earlier as well. But look at this, that 2 Peter 2, 1 and 2, that the way of truth shall be evil spoken of. Those that hold to the word of God. That word of God that's able to sanctify us and set us apart. 1 Timothy 4, 1 and 2 again. The Spirit speaks expressly. I can't think of a better way that the Holy Spirit could have communicated that to us. That in the latter times some shall depart from the faith, giving heed to seducing spirits and doctrines of devils. Speaking lies in hypocrisy, having their own conscience seared with a hot iron. They don't even feel it anymore. They're numb. Okay. Summary so far. What has been will be. 
Apostasy has always occurred, and apostasy is met by God's judgment. Jesus, Paul, Peter, Jude, etc., they all foretold this apostasy. And apostasy will creep in unnoticed. It will often come from within the church. Many are going to be led astray with a false gospel. And a final apostasy will culminate in a one-world, all-embracing church. Sadly, many churches that are meeting this morning that supposedly meet in the name of Jesus will be caught up in this. You've only got to listen to that which they teach to see they've already moved so far away from the gospel. Jim was saying the other week how they were watching a, a video clip and you know, trying to make a teaching from that. It's, people have moved away from scripture. And those who oppose will be spoken evil of. But God will finally judge this apostate church. Isaiah 46, 9 and 10, a great statement of God's authority on time and eternity. Remember the former things of old, for I am God and there is none else. I am God and there is none like me, declaring the end from the beginning and from ancient times the things that are not yet saying, are not yet done, saying, My counsel shall stand and I will do all my pleasure. God is outside of time. He knows the end from the beginning. And this is why he's recorded history in advance. And we have this given to us in Revelation chapter 2 and 3. We have seven letters that Jesus gives that are sent to seven churches that existed at that time. But these letters not only were letters to those churches that existed, but in the particular order that they are given, they lay out the history of the church from the time of the book of Acts to the time of the second coming of Jesus. Why do we say that? How do we know that? Well, for many reasons. But there were many other churches that were significant. The church of Antioch. The church of Jerusalem. Many others. were not included in this list. The ones that have been chosen were specifically chosen by the Holy Spirit to lay out for us the history of the church in advance. We can see where these things are going for those that are diligent and those that study. Matthew 13 also gives us seven parables about the kingdom. And we find that those parables parallel the seven letters to the seven churches. There's an incredible design in all of these things. And again, they lay out the history of the Christian church from the time of the book of Acts to the second coming. There's four levels of meaning in Revelation 2 and 3 particularly. I mean, they are practical letters. They address real churches and the needs at that time. And each letter is also addressed to every individual because it says to he who has an ear. So it's not just to the churches, but to the individuals in those churches or to anybody that would read those letters. There's a general application because it says that we should hear what the Spirit says to the churches. So each letter has an application to all churches because there's, le- there's lessons that we can learn there. And then there's the prophetic element. And we're already told that the book is a book of prophecy. Now, if you found a gate, a door, and next to it you found a key, how do you know if that key fits that gate? Well, you put it and you try it. And exactly the same thing. We, in the first century, it may have been hard for them to understand or see these things, but we're at the other end of the scale now, and we can look back with real clarity at these things. These seven churches, Ephesus, Smyrna, Pergamos, Thyatira, Sardis, Philadelphia, and then finally the church of the Laodiceans. 
Now those first three churches, is interesting, they're separated in the context of what's written with the fact that there's a promise given to those churches that is at the end of the letter, after the, the letter itself. It marks a distinction just in terms of the way the structure is. Whereas the, uh, in each of those there's an end predicted for those churches. Whereas the last four, the promise is included within the letter and there's the idea of continuance stated that they will continue until the time of the end, the time of the second coming. And in closing, I just want to take you through very quickly this incredible history that we have in the Word of God. It is, if you like, the prophetic history of the church. It starts with the church of Ephesus. The church is known of this church of love, the idea of espousal. Um, you know, when, when a couple are joined together, it speaks of that kind of love that the early church had for Jesus. And if you read that letter, there's so many positive things said, and yet the real issue is that they may have forgotten their first love. And it really speaks of that first church age, the early church, from the inception of the church at the day of Pentecost through to about 100 AD. It says, remember therefore from whence thou art fallen and repent and do the first works, or else I will come unto thee quickly and remove thy candlestick out of his place. The warning to that church existed. The same issues that Timothy was dealing with as pastor of that church as well. You know, they were intent on doctrine, but unfortunately they'd also moved so much into the idea of getting everything right that they'd forgotten that love, and we must ever do that. Some speaker can remain nameless, it was Rick Warren if you want to know, but um, on the radio the other day was saying that we've been saved so that we can serve. No, that's not true at all. No, no, we serve out of a love for the Lord, that's true. But I don't have my children so that I have an army of helpers to do things for me. You know, we didn't you know, think, you know, let's start a family so we've got people to help us you know, when we do some painting and decorating or you know, tidying the house up, we've got more people to help us. Uh, we don't have children because we want them to do things for us. We just love them because of who they are. And the Lord is the same with us. He loves us because of who we are. He doesn't need you or want you to do things for him. He wants you to love him. He wants to have that relationship with you. Now, naturally out of that relationship you want to do things you want to serve the lord and god graciously gives us the opportunity to help him it's like i've said before you know there's been times in the past where one of my girls has come up and wanted to help me kind of mow the lawn and i've, I've allowed them to help it actually didn't help very much at all in fact it was more of a hindrance but you know it was lovely to have them helping to, to be involved but it's like that when we do things the lord, the lord doesn't need you and me to help him the Lord's arm is not shortened and it cannot save. God doesn't need you and I, but if he chooses to use us, what a privilege. But it's only because he's a loving father. And he loves to involve us in what he's doing. He does that through prayer and through many things. That's the first church age. We could talk in more detail some other time. But the second church age is the church of Smyrna. It characterized by suffering. That's what the, the, is, is embedded in that name, Myrrh. The idea of suffering. And of course we know historically this was the, the age when the church was being so persecuted and the gladiators and the contests were going on in the Colosseum and Christians were being thrown to the lions and all these kind of things. A really horrible time for, for the early church, but they grew tremendously. It's one of only two churches of which nothing bad is said. 
Now, yes, it was a real church, the church at Smyrna, but the things that are said go beyond just the, the, the physical church at the time of the letter being written, and it speaks of this second church age from about 100 to 313 AD. But it was during this time that tares were sown among the wheats. Matthew 13, where we read in church history, so much was being introduced into the church subtly, and some of it from very well-meaning individuals. Anyone knows anything about um, the Aryan heresies and Oregon and these individuals that introduced ideas suggesting that Jesus wasn't really the Christ and all sorts of other things, and um, you know the, the the heresies that were coming in from um, Alexander in Egypt at the time as well, the Gnostics. All this period of history, we see ideas creeping into the church where things were being watered down. They were told to be faithful unto death. There was an end predicted for them. The next church age is the church of Pergamos. And this is very interesting because the picture in the background depicts the, the battle at Milan Bridge with Constantine, Emperor Constantine. And allegedly he had this dream the night before, and you can see up the top there, if I can get there, see up the top of the cross. And Constantine, apparently in his dream, sees this cross in the sky saying, in this sign conquer. And allegedly Constantine became a Christian and, and so on. And he then legalized Christianity. Rather than Christians being persecuted, suddenly allowed the Christians to come out of the the catacombs and the, the homes where they were meeting behind locked doors for fear of persecution and so on, suddenly they're allowed out and they're allowed to go and use the pagan buildings. And it's actually the pagans that were then cast out. And suddenly the church has got these great, wonderful buildings. Now, that begins a marvelous and wonderful time for architecture, but it's a dreadful time for the church. Pergamos, the idea, the name means mixed marriage. Per as in like pervert and gamos, you know, polygamy, monogamy, the idea of marriage. Okay, so it's, it's a mixed, a perverted marriage. And it's exactly what happened to the church at that point in history, that the church got mixed with the things of the world. And loads of the old Babylonian practices that have been taken on by the Romans got introduced into the church. The idea of the clergy and the laity and the, the robes that, that so on are worn. The idea of a kind of a raised area at the front and altars and all those kind of things that we see typically in many churches today were introduced at this point in history. Have you ever wondered when people talk about church, they think of a building with a spire on top. Where did that come from? Where do we read that in scripture? Jesus said his kingdom wasn't of this world and, and yet suddenly we, we find that the, the buildings become so ornate and so lavish and so wonderful when it became a problem at this point in history. The third church age, again, the Constantine church, if you like, from 313 to about 590 AD. The warning there is, repent or else I will come unto thee quickly and will fight against them with the sword of my mouth. But that then leads on to the next period of church history. The word Thyatira, the name Thyatira, literally means continual sacrifice. And what a better expression or name to be given to the Roman Catholic Church. This idea of transubstantiation, continually offering a sacrifice. The fourth church age, which goes from about 590 AD, and it's still running. The Catholic Church, of course, is still very strong today. Nothing's changed. And they will go up until the time of the tribulation. Interestingly, we have this comment about Jezebel for this church. It says, I gave her space to repent of her fornication, and she repented not. Behold, I will cast her into a bed and them that commit adultery with her into great tribulation. It's promised that they will be thrown into the tribulation. This fourth church age. 
But then out of that, as you know from history, we get the Reformation church. Sardis, it means remnant. It's the fifth church age, this reformed church that comes out of the period of, of this, this period of history. And it's a fascinating period of history. You know, we're going from, from about 1500 or so all the way through from Henry VIII onwards and, uh, of course with Elizabeth in this country, Elizabeth I. I mean, if you know your history, you, it's just incredible all the changes and things that took place. But that really goes from that period of time, again, 1517 or so through to the time of the tribulation. Now, interestingly, there's nothing good said about this church. You and I would tend to think that the Catholic Church was the bad church, but Sardis was actually the good church. No, it is not the way at all. In fact, when we look next week at the parallel with Israel, you'll see, just as it was with Israel and Judah, Judah are actually counted as worse than Israel because they should have learned the lessons from Israel, the northern kingdom, and they didn't. The prophet, the Protestant church did not learn the lessons. Yes, they reclaimed that doctrine of salvation by grace, but they remained largely anti-Semitic. They never ever reclaimed the, the teaching about the return of Jesus and the idea of a millennial reign that the Bible speaks so clearly about. Interestingly, it's a church that are warned about not watching about Jesus coming upon them like a thief. How interesting that the majority of the churches that came out of the Reformation care nothing for the return of Jesus. They deny the rapture almost exclusively. But that then leads on to the church of Philadelphia, the church of brotherly love. That's the idea of the name Philadelphia. It's the sixth church age. This is really the faithful church. This church again... There is nothing bad spoken of it. It's a church that are, are promised to escape the things that are coming upon the earth. To escape from the hour of temptation. This church seems to endure up until the time of the rapture. And then the final church age. The times in which we are living right now. And again, bear in mind these last, all these last four are all running parallel. I'll show you in a second. But Laodicea it means the rule of the people. It's the seventh church age, really from about 1900 AD to the time of the tribulation. This church age where we have this church that's so wealthy, and yet Jesus says, I will spew you out of my mouth because thou sayest I am rich and increased with goods and have need of nothing, and knowest not that thou art wretched and miserable and poor and blind and naked. Those things have real import into the actual church at the time of Laodicea, but what a message for the days in which we live, that the church that thinks it has everything, we have great sound systems on lighting rigs and all the great venues and buildings that have been put together. Mega churches now. And yet, what have we really got? Somebody I know happened to go to a, a mega church in London and I spoke to them and I said, what happened? Just talk me through it. You know, and they spoke about how the music was really good and then somebody got up and spoke for a bit. And I said, did they read the Bible? And the person went, um, yeah, I think somebody did read a verse or two from the Bible. So sad. They've become entertainment centres for so many of these places. So looking at these churches, Ephesus, Smyrna, Pergamos, and Thyatira, then Thyatira promised to go into the tribulation this, this time. Sardis the same. Philadelphia promised this escape at the time of the rapture. And then Laodicea again. And those final churches will all merge together the Protestant churches, the Catholic churches, the modern churches of today will all merge together 
into this one world church, which we read about in Revelation 17 and 18, about the judgment that God is going to bring upon them. Again, those seven kingdom parables mirror these seven letters. The parable of the sower, again, speaks of the church of Ephesus. We could go through some more details some other time. The parable of the wheat and the tares, again, it was during that time of Smyrna that these things started being introduced in the church. The parable of the mustard seed, how interesting that is. The mustard seed should just be a bush that grows so high. And yet it becomes something that it should never have been. That The birds of the air, which in scripture always represents the ministers of Satan, come and lodge in the branches. What it's saying is that the church became something it should not have been. And that's exactly what happened with Pergamos. As the church suddenly became wealthy from a real estate point of view as well. And it became a political entity, not just a spiritual one. The parable of the leaven, how fitting we have with the church of Thyatira. This woman depicted with this leaven. The parable of hidden treasure. What a beautiful picture of Sardis. In terms of the Reformation, that hidden treasure being the, the, the gospel of grace. Martin Luther particularly understood grace. And that hidden treasure taken out of the field. The parable of the goodly pearl, though, is interesting because it speaks of the church of Philadelphia, which again is that time, I believe, speaks of the rapture yet to come. Pearls are interesting because they're Gentile. They're not Jewish in that sense. From a Jewish perspective, they're not kosher. So a Jew wouldn't have any real interest in a pearl. But a pearl is something that is formed by irritation. Interesting, isn't it? Isn't that the way the church grows? And yet it's taken from its place and becomes an item of adornment. Just as the church will be taken from this world and become an item of adornment as we become the bride of Christ. And then finally, the parable of the dragnet, bringing all these together, this final church age. Well, that's just a, a, a summary of where we've gone, the history, the fact that judgment's coming, and a warning not to be deceived. Our safeguard, our safety net is the word of God. Next week, we'll build on this. We'll look at, again, the future of the church as seen through the history of Israel. Let's bow our hearts. Father, we just thank you for this time this morning. We pray you just help us. To always stay true to your word, Lord, not to listen to man or man's opinion. Father, if we do hear things that stir us, Lord, may we receive them with all readiness, but search the scriptures daily to see if they're so. Lord, help us to hold on to your word, for your word is that which makes us wise unto salvation. Oh, Father, we pray that you give us wisdom in these days in which we live. Lord, help us also to... Have the wisdom to speak to those who are caught up in these things, who don't see the danger of this watered-down gospel that's presented these days. And Lord, may we keep growing in knowledge and in grace with our eyes firmly fixed upon Jesus, the author and finisher of our faith. We ask these things this morning in his name. Amen.